702. The Naked Scientist. It is about that time, The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. Give us a call, all of your science-related questions. 011-8830702. Your SMSs, 31702. Your tweets at RelebuchileM at Radio 702. Using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. And the WhatsApp line, 0727021702. All of your science-related questions for the good doctor and he joins us now dr chris smith how are you happy monday happy monday to you as well i'm in good shape but how about you i am fantastic and i missed you last week i have to be honest because we had our public holiday uh but i'm glad that you are back to answer everybody's questions joshua in bramley is the very first one to go joshua go ahead hi really hi dr chris mm. hi um uh, I'd like to ask the naked scientists, what is the correct number of total dissolved solids in water? Because I've recently seen that there's high brands with very low TDS counts. Um, what is the safe number? I didn't catch the question. You want to know what? Sorry. Um, the total dissolved solids in water, like there's that branding like at the back of the bottle. It says TDS count and there's like oh, brands yeah. with like 65. And I'm not really sure if that's safe. Well, remember that if I dissolve salt in water, that's a dissolved solid. And Mm -hmm. so anything that you've dissolved and may disappear by making it in solution in the water, that's something which is in solution. It's not disappeared, it's still there. It's just dissolved in the water. And they give this as an indication of of how much stuff is in there, so how how far removed that is from pure water. So if I took distilled water, then there would be no dissolved solids in it. If I took water that's filtered through limestone or uh, has been sitting underground in in an artesian well for millions of years, then I would obviously have a lot of things in solution. So there's no number which is spot-on perfect because pure water is all right as long as you make sure you get plenty of minerals to make up for what's not in the water. But very, very salty water is not good because you don't want to be having loads of salts in it that are uh, going to clog up your system. So it really comes down to uh, what, what's the safe level. And the safe level is if, if you can taste it that it's salty, it's probably too salty. Mm. Oh, okay. You got your answer Thank there, you. Joshua? Yes, I have my answer. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Joshua in Bramley. And I've got a question for you, Doctor. Now, I found something um, interesting on this account that I follow. And the headline reads, Scientists officially confirmed the benefits of MDMA in PTSD treatment. And I was wondering if you'd heard anything about it. Well, MDMA is methylene dioxymethamphetamine otherwise known as ecstasy. Mm. And this drug, in fact, was invented by Merck, the pharmaceutical company, back in about 1911. And they were looking for an agent that they could give to soldiers to, uh, A, give them energy, but also to stave off hunger. Because one of the problems with uh, warfare, and this is around the time of the First World War beginning to, to build up, was that there were supply problems with getting people adequately nourished and so if you had something that would keep people awake make them vigilant make them alert but also save off hunger that might be beneficial so scientists were investigating a family of drugs that we call amphetamines of which this is one one part of that family and amphetamines do promote arousal which is why they were interested in exploring them but but this particular form mdma 
that turned out to be unsuitable for that purpose because it's not called the hug drug for no reason. It gives people enormous sense uh, of euphoria, but also energy and love and trust and uh, kind of empathy. So it's not very good if you want people fighting and to have aggression, to give them something that actually does the opposite effect. So they abandoned it for that reason. And it largely remained as a sort of chemical backwater for many years. But psychotherapists have continued to investigate its effect. And of course, it's become very big on, or it did become very big on the club scene because of its um, beneficial effects in terms of mood that I mentioned. But alongside those sort of recreational uses, research has continued to investigate its actions because of its change or its influence on mood. So people are wondering whether it may be possible to use this in various therapeutic circumstances. Mm. Will it, for instance, make a person more trusting and, and bond better with a therapist, which would make them more susceptible to suggestion that things that they're thinking that might not be so good for their mental health are wrong and they can revert their thinking or help them to embrace other ways of thinking. So there, there are lots of ways in which these drugs, which are pretty powerful, mustn't be abused, but in the right circumstances can be very, very useful indeed. Another is, is um, LSD or drugs like LSD, which are hallucinogens. Uh, while they are drugs of abuse and people use them recreationally, because of their ability to affect the way that the brain interprets how we think, the way in which it, it relates to what we are in relation to the world around us, and it can loosen those ideas, at least for a while, it, it can be pretty powerful as a therapeutic tool. So scientists continue to investigate how it can be used to basically get underneath certain neurological or, or mental health problems when done in a responsible and safe way. Is that similar to those healing retreats that people go on where they take a particular herb? I'm not sure if it's like magic mushrooms or what it is, but they also use it for healing their past traumas. Well, again, if you have a particular mental health problem and it's caused by, uh, we as humans are very good at thinking in quite rigid terms. So we learn things, we become very good at things, but then we can cling on to an idea because we've got it into our head that that's the right way of doing something. And it can actually be bad for us to think like that. And if it's become pathological for that person, they think themselves into a depressive corner, for example, sometimes taking an agent that can remove the sort of rigidity of a, of a way in which a person may think or behave, enabling them to consider other alternative ways of thinking or mm. other ideas or other facets, that can enable them to uh, get underneath whatever's causing their problem and develop a more healthy mental framework through which to view the world and, and operate. And that can help to get people out of that depressive corner they perhaps painted themselves into. Mm, all right, that makes complete sense. Let's go to Johnny in Harangua. Hi, Johnny. Good day to you, Rene and the naked scientist, who I believe is fully dressed. It's freezing out here today. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty freezing here as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, South Africa is a water-scarce country, and in an effort to preserve it, I do not only slice my urine the first time, but only the second time around, you know? So my observation is that in an, uh, you know, this urine attracts a colony of ants. And, and I, I just wonder if uh, uric acid could be, uh, which is found in sweat, or could be that attractive to, to, to this ant. Mm. And if it is so, why do ants not overwhelm people who sweat a lot? Mm. Nice question there, Johnny, doctor. 
was the question, because the phone line wasn't great, was the question Okay, so basically... In a nutshell, the ants and people coexist without overwhelming one another. No, so basically what he's saying is that he's noticed because he doesn't flush the toilet every time he urinates to save water. And there'll be a flurry of ants, right? So he's asking... Are they attracted possibly to the uric acid? And if that's the case, you know, would they then be attracted to somebody who, for example, sweats a lot? Um, I hope I summarized your question fairly there, Johnny. Perfectly, perfectly. Okay, Doctor, there's the question. A few things to consider here. One is just to make sure that you haven't got extra sugar in your urine because ants love sugary stuff. And people who have diabetes, including undiagnosed diabetes, will pass more sugar in their urine. And if this splashes about all over the place, it will leave some sugar crystals behind, which can attract ants. But you're right to speculate that ants might be after other minerals too, because ants have a big colony to feed. And urine does contain trace elements of various important minerals that a fast-growing organism needs. And this includes nitrogen, but also phosphorus. And they call urine the golden stream because way back in time, philosophers and early chemists thought that perhaps you could turn the golden stream into gold itself. And they boiled up loads of urine and discovered the element phosphorus in the process. And it is very valuable in terms of of growth. And we put phosphorus into fertilizer because it makes plants grow for the same reason. They need phosphorus as part of their DNA. So one other possibility is that, yes, the ants are also going for the minerals, which dry onto the toilet bowl and other places, and will pick them off. So there's a range of possibilities here. One would be sugar. Just make sure there's nothing wrong with you or someone else is using the lose health and they haven't got diabetes, for example. But I, I, you're probably on the right lines that there are other minerals in there that might be attracting the ants and they're carting off the waste. And one nice little story, I interviewed a guy about 20 years ago who published this really interesting paper when he was in the Amazon. And he noticed that there were ants going up and down this tree he was studying in the Amazon that had bright red back, back ends. And they were bright red like a berry. And when he cut open one of these ants, he found they were absolutely stuffed with tiny worms, parasites. And what was happening is that the ants would go and eat bird poo that, to get the phosphorus and the other nitrogenous waste from the bird poo. That in the bird poo were these parasites which would infect the ants. They would turn the whole of the back end of the ant into a bright red berry looking thing because it was so full of these worms. It would look like a berry to the birds that would then come and eat the ants in order to get what they thought was a berry. But in the process, they would pick up the parasite which would then pass through the bird's body and then come out the back end and infect more ants from the colony. So that's another example of, of how nature works in a wonderful way. Mm. Very, very fascinating stuff. Thank you so much, Johnny in Kharanku, and I hope you go and get your sugar checked out just in case. We've got a voice note. Hi, Rilo Bakhile. A question for the naked scientist. Why does bread always fall on the buttered side? It has never happened to me if it happens that bread will fall, that it falls uh, buttered side up, always falls on the buttered side. I would like to know if there's a scientific explanation to it. Enjoying the show. Thanks, bye. Thank you so much. Um, It's it's true, doctor. Why is that the case? And then it's just over for you. There's, a, there's actually quite a good reason for this, which is that what side do we tend to have the buttered bread 
on when it's on the table? Well, it's butter side up. Yes. And how high is the table? Well, when you knock the bread off the table, it turns out that the time it takes the bread to fall sideways off the table and then fall downwards onto the ground is just enough that the bread has time to make half a loop but not a full loop. So it tends to land butter side down. And if you were to hold the bread higher, there's a chance it would actually turn over more than once and not land butter side down. We actually did do the experiment on the Naked Scientist about 20 years ago. Wow. And we found that it's to do with how high your table is. So if you're a giant eating human-sized pieces of bread and butter, then you probably wouldn't have the problem that your bread would land butter side down. But because of the height of the table and the fact we knock it off from a butter side up position onto its side, it has just enough time to describe enough of a fall and then a twist and a turn to complete the revolution halfway and land butter side down. Oh, I think the the real question we need to be asking, Doctor, is what do you do when your bread is halfway going down and you want to salvage it? How do you stop well, the you mess from happening? Sides, couldn't you? Because then it will always land butter side down, but also always butter side up. And then you can always argue that you're at least right half the time. <laughs> well, I get what you're saying. Bungani in Jabulani, hi. Good afternoon. How are you? To both of you. Good, thanks. And you? Yes, thank you. My question to the naked scientist is, how is it possible that a mosquito right in the dead of night and in total darkness is able to find its way into my ears opening, right into my ear? Mm. <laughs> that has been, I've been wondering about that for a very long time. Mm. Thank you so much for that question, Bongane. Doctor, so mosquitoes being able oh. to, to just find that ear hole and make its way in there to get some blood. Yeah, I've been there, got the T-shirt and the mosquito bite <laughs> boot. Well, the answer is mosquitoes are flying hypodermics. They, the ones that we tend to have a brush with are the female repro- reproducing mosquitoes that need a blood meal in order to lay lots of eggs. And they are well endowed with detection systems to track us down and find their dinner. And the way they do it is that they have antennae, they've got two of them, which behave like their noses, and they are covered in fine sprays of nerve endings that are sensitive to many smells that humans and other animals produce, not least the carbon dioxide in our breath. One of the first ways that mosquitoes home in on us is they can smell us, not quite from a mile off, but from a long way away, and they can resolve across their two antennae which direction the smell of us is coming from, including that CO2 in our breath, and they fly towards the source. So that gets them into close proximity, but mosquitoes also have temperature detectors. They can see heat, and the reason they can see heat is because blood is hot, and if you've got skin which is relatively well insulated by the fat underneath the skin, but then you've got blood vessels running through the skin, the hot spots will be where the warm blood is. And so they're very good at tracking down the heat. Of course, ears are an exposed part of your body. You tend to notice when mosquitoes go towards your ears because the sound wakes you up. But they're also well endowed with a blood supply. And so mosquitoes might go for those as an exposed area near where the CO2 is coming from, which is your mouth and your nose, and so they'll make a beeline, if that's the right word to use for your ears, because they can get a free meal. But you tend to notice when they have, A, because it's annoying, 
B, because it wakes you up because of the sound, and C, because it's itchy and in a very, very annoying place. All right. Thank you so much for that question. We have a comment from the previous question. Hi, Rebukhine. Just want to ask the naked scientist about, you know, talking about the bread and uh, the side that it always lands down. Um, and then, of course, we also have cats. They always land on their feet. So now I want to know from the naked scientist, if we strap a piece of bread to the back of the cat, <laughs> will we have something that just uh, spins a little bit off the ground <laughs> the whole time? It will hover. Yeah, if people have said this is a perpetual motion machine in the making, um, what would happen to a cat? Because that's, actually cats do have a writing mechanism. People have studied this using fast video footage and you can take very, very rapid pictures of what cats do. And if they fall from an adequately big height to give them time to self-write them, themselves, then they will actually describe a range of manoeuvres that end up with the cat with its feet pointing downwards. And as they come down and land, they then use the cushioning effect of a big surface area and their rib cage to squash against the ground to absorb the impact. And so they're then able to walk away from falling from quite a a big height. But they need a big enough height in order to describe that manoeuvre in order to get themselves right. And so someone did actually look at a study of cats falling from different heights and found that, that paradoxically, as it may initially seem, that the cats falling from a greater height up to a point actually are less likely to be injured than cats falling from a lower height because they have time to get themselves right and then use their chest as that shock absorber to slow themselves down as they hit the ground on their feet going downwards. So, Doctor, what he was saying, though, is if we do strap the buttered side of the bread facing up onto the cat, will it just continue to spiral mid-air? Well, that's what I said. People have suggested this is a possible perpetual motion machine. It's so insane. But the fact is that, that if you did that, you, you'd have you'd have a perpetual motion machine. I got you. I, I got I you. I would like to try it because cats don't like um, like don't like bread and butter very much. They certainly don't like things being strapped to them. But good luck trying. You, <laughs> you should wear some leather gloves and look at scratched pieces. All right, uh, we've got another voice note. Hi, I've got a question for the naked scientist. I just wanted to know: Is there scientific explanation for why a person would not get um, high from smoking cannabis. Okay, so why well, do some people not we, get high? When we're exposed to cannabis, it binds onto and activates a family of molecules which are expressed on nerve cells in a certain parts of the brain and also actually in other parts of the body as well. And when you activate those chemical docking stations, you change the activity of various cells that they are connected to, and that's what produces the effect. And the more of the drug that you take into your body, the greater the the effect is going to be. Now, now those molecules are normally there to respond to molecules that your body makes itself. And so what the cannabis is doing is mimicking natural chemicals that are in your body and, and being a bit better at doing it so you get the effect. In order for there not to be an effect, there would have to be either an absence of those receptors or the receptors would have to be the wrong shape or the drug wasn't getting into the body or there wasn't any drug there in the first place. So it could be a range of of reasons why a person wouldn't respond to a drug. 
when we do occasionally medicine see people who are very resistant to the effects of some drugs and this is because naturally in the population there are some people who either break drugs down very quickly the drugs are not absorbed into their body very quickly or the target in the body that the drug is normally affecting is different in that person either because there's too little of it or it's a different shape and structure so the drug doesn't work and it could be any of those things that would account for this uh, in this circumstance Mm. All right, one last voice note. Hi, 702, it's Tabang Komahit, Deviton. I want to know something here. Uh, why, like, I eat healthy, but I still get fat? My friend doesn't like to eat healthy. He always eats fast food, like a lot of junk food. But this slender, he's wearing like size 30, and I eat healthy. I'm wearing size 36 now. I'm getting fed and fed and fed. I don't know what's the problem. What could be the cause? What must I do? Please help, doctor. Doctor, I'm sure many people are listening thinking, also me, I know someone who eats anything and everything and doesn't gain a single drop of weight. And then I look at a chocolate and I've gained 10 kilograms. When I first set foot in 702 on Reedy Clabby's show mm. uh, Thomas was helping Reedy with the program Thomas yes, yes. we became very good friends and Thomas did me a lot of favours helping me out with various things I was doing over the years and so I said Thomas I'll take you out to dinner uh, to say thank you and some other people at 702 looked at me and said you're mad and I said why and they said have you seen how much this guy can eat i'm sorry thomas if you're still listening but (laughs) i laughed and said they must be joking but i took thomas to this restaurant and and he ordered and the chef came out from the kitchen and said do you you really want me you're ordering that and thomas went yeah and the guy said really and he said yeah and then he went back to the kitchen and got the piece of meat that he wanted him to cook and and it was huge and it, it, when they eventually finished cooking it, it needed two plates to bring this out. And I, I kid you not, he just ate the lot. And I've never seen anyone eat all that and then put away two two big glasses of Coca-Cola. And, um, and he ate probably three times the amount I did. And I'm pretty skinny. He's skinnier than I am, <laughs> or was. And, and we all joked and said, have you got the world's biggest tapeworm inside you that's basically eating all of your lunch? Um, so there are people who are very lucky and have a very fast metabolism and they burn off calories and they don't get fat. And there are a number of reasons why this can happen. One is, is met- metabolics and you just burn off some of the energy. The other reason is some people don't absorb calories at the same rate as others. And one of the reasons for that is that the microbes that live in us, in our intestines, have an effect of liberating more or fewer calories from our dinner. And that can also affect the way in which people get energy out of their food and what they do with that energy. And there's there's very good studies now showing that people who are higher in weight, if you take their microbes and put them into, say, mice, which don't have any microbes in their gut, and you do this for larger people and smaller people, the mice will gain a lot more weight if they are given microbes from people who are larger and people who are skinnier. Dr. Chris, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to leave it there. We've run out of time, and I know so many of us are like, we're waiting for the part where he says this is how you can eat anything and gain nothing.